welcome to the Stoke Connect podcast series. Our podcasts are designed to not only connect with our staff, but to also motivate, inspire and educate on trending topics in our industry, plus so much more. You'll discover about your fellow colleagues, we'll explore some industry-relevant topics, and share useful tips on well-being, health and safety, as well as career and personal development. To hear our latest episode, go to stowaustralia.com.au or head to our Facebook page to hear the latest podcast. We hope that you enjoy the next episode of the Stoke Connect podcast series. Well, welcome everyone. I'm Scott Gandy and I'm here to host today as we launch the podcast series Stoke Connect. For episode one, I'm joined by a living legend of the Brisbane Broncos and the NRL, Shane Webke. Shane represented Queensland in 21 origins and also captained the side. He's also represented our country in 26 tests. His position was the toughest one on the field playing prop forward and at his peak was renowned as the best front rower in the game. Alongside the legends such as Lazarus, Beaton, Webke is considered by many as the best post-war front rower to have played the game. Between 1995 and his retirement from the NRL in 2006, Shane played his entire career with a one club, the Brisbane Broncos, and fortunate enough to have won four NRL premierships. After hanging up the boots, Shane turned his attention to sporting presenter, author, publican, and farmer. But Shane now is playing a significant role with the Queensland government. And in doing some research of my own before talking with Shane, I come across Shane's powerful message, playing it safe with Shane Webke. He reflects on his own experience that before he was a footballer, before he was a farmer, before he was a newsreader, and before he was a father, he was his father's son. As you'll come to learn, Shane had a very close relationship with his dad, a real connection living on the land, and he still has vivid memories of early morning coffees, long works around the property, and chats that he will never forget. So today, I'm pleased to be joined by Shane for today's episode one of Stowe's podcast series. Welcome, Shane. Hey, mate. It's a pleasure to be here. The journey from playing in the toughest sport in the world, the theatre of state of origin, to becoming the safety ambassador for the uh, Queensland government. How does that journey come about? Well, it's, it's a long story. And to be honest with you, I wish I couldn't be the safety ambassador for the Queensland government because that would mean that my dad would still be alive. Um, And if I look at my life as a whole, which has been wonderful, to be honest, uh, in terms of some of the struggles that people go through, mine's punctuated by one very painful event, and that was the loss of my dad, um, who was killed prior to my footy career taking off. And in many ways, um, I wouldn't say it was the inspiration for my footy career, but it is the reason that my footy career occurred, simply because at the time when he was killed, I was only 19 years old. Um, and it was in that very tenuous stage, I was in my very much the fledgling stages of my Broncos career. And the perspective that one gains from going through a tragedy like that, whilst is you know, is, is a very difficult thing, that perspective that I got from it allowed me to go back to Brisbane and look at my footy career and look at football itself in a very different light. And it's that perspective and, and, and I guess the hardship and, and the, the things that needed to be overcome in losing dad that really taught me a lot about myself, which then I think was one of the, the main reasons that I was able to then go on and, and excel in a rugby league career. 
I, I have no doubt had Dad not um, have succumbed to a terrible injury, uh, a terrible workplace accident, the life would have been very different. And I'm not sure what would happen, and it's pointless to think like that, really. But ultimately, um, his death has shaped me in a lot, a lot, a lot of different ways. And as you, in your introduction, which was very nice, actually, um, I am reminded about the closeness of my relationship with him. But he's been gone for 26 years. Wow. And, and wow. it's something it's something that when I talk to people about safety about I, I try to, to impress upon them that, you know, because we all have this tendency, you know, we're the eternal optimist human beings. Like we wouldn't drive cars if we weren't. More people die in cars and ever gonna die in workplace accidents, yet we all drive them. So we don't tend to think that that the worst case scenario is gonna happen to us. But if we could, if we could imagine when we take these risks, because inevitably, and blokes particularly, take enormous risks at work because, and, and you know, it's because we think that worst case scenario won't happen. And gen, and generally, it doesn't happen. We're bulletproof. Um, so it, we think... It won't be me. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the longer we go with something not happening to us when we're taking risks, the less likely we think that it will ever happen. But what I try and impress upon people to try and think about that if the worst case scenario does happen, and even if even if it's as um, if it's not death, if it's maiming, and and then you then become um, dependent upon other people, that never goes away. The effect of someone's death, and and your death, and you think, well, okay, I take a risk, I hurt myself. It's only me that hurts. It is never only you that hurts. Now, all of us have got someone who rely upon us or, or care and love love us. They are the ones who suffer. They are the ones who who inevitably go on through life always carrying what happened. And that's what it is with my family. Our family were ripped apart because of what happened to my dad. And and the, the cruel thing about it, the cruelest thing about it, totally avoidable. Totally yeah. avoidable. That pain should never have been bestowed upon us. And my father did that inadvertently. It doesn't change the fact of what I think of him. But I've got to tell you this, and I don't think that we think about this. I blame him for the risk he took that night. Because it took his, it took him from us, and we've lived with that pain. He, he, in that moment took, that he took that risk, he was killed instantly, and we are thankful that he did not suffer. But in the end, it is that, that particular moment, that exact moment, that our pain started and continues unabated. And yeah. so I try desperately to to impress upon people, particularly blokes like me, who will take risks. Um, that there is a there is a greater price to be paid by the people that you love and care about if it all goes wrong. Yeah, mate, so true, so true. And I think, you know, that um, yeah, that probably leads us into trying to understand and just expressing why you are so motivated and you're passionate about this role that you're playing with the Queensland government. And I think you use the words in in um, in your video and you talk about a greater responsibility. A task you think to yourself. This feels bloody terrible. This feels unsafe. If you go to your boss and he dismisses you, the next thing you do is you pick up you pick up your lunch bag and you walk out and you never go back. Because yeah. had my father have had even an inkling of that attitude and, and looked at the, the, the scenario that he put himself in in light of, you know, what happens if this goes wrong, it wouldn't have happened to him. So yeah. th- there is enormous responsibility on both sides of this equation but it is us. We have the greatest power. Yeah, we, need we have the power to actually make those decisions at the ground level. Oftentimes, I find employers have the best of intention, but they can't be everywhere all the time. So they actually rely on on their employees to bring things to their attention. Yeah, and 
you know, um, sharing that responsibility in a role comes with operating and being a, a officer or a manager or a supervisor in a business, and everyone needs to own their actions. Um, we often yep. also talk about what we're prepared to accept and what we walk past is what we accept. So the health and safety of one is the responsibility of all. It's who's working beside you. It's working with you. If it be a young apprentice, it be a supervisor, you know, um, we've got a duty to everyone who works with us and around us. And that goes, and that, and this is something I learned from professional sport, that goes to culture. And culture, culture, is, is, culture is born out of leadership. Yeah. So if leaders in, inside a business, if they have a standard that they will not accept anything less, that becomes culture. Great point. And, you know, and I often say, well, the, you know, to businesses, well, is there a stow way of doing this? The stow way of doing it is yeah. this. And that's how we do it. That's how we're always going to do it. And yeah. any, any deviation from that is unacceptable. That is what culture is. Culture is really, people think it's this mystical thing. Culture is about rigid sets of rules that become second nature. And it's yeah. like all habits. Good habits are like bad habits. They're easy to get and easy to keep. You would have... Uh... You would have been your time, Shane, I think, have plenty of sessions maybe up there in the Queensland squads and, and maybe in the Broncos with the likes of Meninga and, and Bennett talk about culture and say, well, what is it? What what does culture stand for? Is there a definition for it? Is it in the Oxford Dictionary? You know, um, the best person that they've explained it to me was, well, culture is just the behaviours that you take and you tend to do as an acceptable level. What is it that you prepare to accept? And what is it that you see in the standards and the behaviour that comes about? That is your culture. It's how you roll. It's what you do. That's right. But it has to start. It has to start with a rigid set of rules that yep. everyone knows. The, the, the period I played at the Broncos, it was one of the most successful eras in the club's short history. Um, and that was because... There was a rigid set. People don't understand. People think culture is somehow that all these people just came together who think really well. Yeah. It's not that at all. It's got nothing to do with it. What happens is someone sets, and this is where good leadership comes into it, someone sets out that this is what, and this is Wayne Bennett in our case, set out, and not thousands of rules, just some big ones that, that talked of, and one of them, I'll give you a really good example. One of them at the Broncos, and, and one of the first things I learned is that at the Bronx, we find the lines. And what that means in a, in a simple context is that, say, if you're doing a drill, well, you're expected to run to the halfway and back to the try line. When you get to the halfway, there's no one checking that you actually get over the top of that line and then come back. But it, it is a metaphor, finding the line is a metaphor for doing what. If you start to pull up short of that line, just, you know, just be at 10 centimetres just to get that, oh, I'm a little bit buggered, I'm going to pull up a little bit short today. That's a metaphor for what you start to do and everything that you do. And that's how culture is eroded. The moment that you start to accept less than you always have, your culture is starting to erode. And that is what has happened to our mighty club right now, is that the standards that were so relied upon and predicated upon actually being part of it have been eroded to the point where people have forgotten what the original rules were. And when you get to that, you're in dangerous territory. So culture, culture... And, and, and mystifies me what people think about it. And I, I love to demystify it because I think they think it's this magical thing, this magical blanket that sits over good organisations. It's not. It's it's a it's a an adherence to a rigid set of standards and values 
that no one is allowed to deviate from. And that then what you get is everybody owning those. And if someone yeah. on and this is where you know you've got culture, if someone on your work floor picks up a mate and says, you know what, we don't do it this way here. We just don't. This is the way you do it. And once you, once you get people correcting each other at that work level, well, then you've got something really powerful. Absolutely. And that's what good organisations have got. And good organisations with good safety, that's what they have. And that takes courage and that takes support from management and they know they've got their back. Um, I totally agree. Um, mate, we touched on earlier about about that tragic accident with your, with your father and um, you get an early morning phone call after Origin in June 94 from, from mum that changed you and your family's life forever. Um, help us probably understand how a young man at, at 19, living away from home, sort of um, responds to a situation like that and what you were feeling, the emotions and the things you had to gather around you um, and your family um, uh, to get through. You know, um, I mean, you can imagine uh, the shock of a phone call um, like that, and immediately your world is just plunged into into disarray. Um, and you know, the first few days went like a blur um, because you know, at that age, nineteen years old, no one I'd ever known had had really died. Like I'd lost grandparents and that, but they'd lived their lives, and it was more natural that that would be the case. But when someone's ripped away from you like that, um, and and I, you know, speak to other people who've been through a similar thing. It it is horrific. There's no other way to describe it. And we went home, and and there was a great many things that had to happen, um, uh, and including in the end, we had to sell our farm. But but just the initial stages of of getting to, like, so people don't understand when people are killed in a workplace accident, then there's a coronial aspect to that. So it, it takes a while to get to the actual day of a funeral. Yeah. Which is when you can actually start to, you know, the, when when you know, there's there's no other course of action except to to go through those processes, get someone buried, and then you start to heal. Then you start to climb out of a of a black hole that that you sometimes think you never will. And it's a long process. And for a 19 year old boy that I was at the time, I, I got to tell you, I didn't deal with it well. Um, and 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 turned to alcohol at different times. Um, and and basically, you, you're lost. Um, the most impo- one of the most important and influential figures in my life, my father, was gone. Um, and and to be honest, it was very difficult to know what to do. Um, and you muddle your way through it. And we had the added the added thing, I suppose. The only thing I've ever really been passionate about in my life. I love playing rugby league, but but it pales into insignificance compared to what I think of farming and agriculture. And that was that's all I've ever wanted to do with my life. Um, but when Dad was was killed. Uh, I felt like that was that was being taken from me, um, and and in a way it was because as a result of that, and Mum and Dad didn't have a lot of money, uh, we had to sell our property, and at that point I go back to Brisbane to play footy because I thought, well, you know that that part of my life isn't going to happen. Now, thankfully, because a lot of water under the bridge and, and football took off for me, I was able to buy another place, um, which my mother still lives on. So that was one of the good things that came out of it all, I suppose. But but in the in the first instance, there there was there was nothing there was yeah. nothing except pain, hurt, and confusion. Um, but it's funny, yeah. it's funny. Yeah. You, you 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 find a way through it, and if you can, and and, and you know, for the majority of people do, um, it does make you stronger on the other side. There's no two ways about that. Yeah, um, but just the wider effect, isn't it, mate? You, you you talk about losing your father, you. 
you reflect on some of those early morning coffees, the walk around the property and just some of the vivid memories you have of the, the close chats and, and your love of the land. You know, he ingrained that in you and, and the effect of making a decision or the effect of, you know, um, a safe workplace, you know, has a greater effect and, and it's there for the rest of your life. It's there for the rest of your life, your kids, your kids' kids, at uh, the farm, um, yeah, the generation of Webkey's farming. So, um, yeah. It, no, it's a huge thing. And, and you know, and, and I lament on a great many things, but one of the biggest ones is that, that he never met my kids, never met my yeah. brother's kids. He never went to our weddings, uh, never saw me play, loved rugby league, never saw me play for Queensland, Brisbane, Australia, never saw any of that. Yeah. And all because of a, of a split-second decision that if he had gone a different way, he'd still be here. And, and, and I think, and I think we spoke... We yeah, we spoke about having some some hindsight of vision about you know what it looks like in the future, and then if you go back and would you be able to maybe change the decisions you make or or make a smarter decision? You know, um, there is a bigger the bigger situation to take into account, and the shortcuts or the complacency or or the, we come back to that question. Well, I've said it a couple of times: is it worth it? And the answer is no. No. Yeah. And the other thing I've learned I've learned two things about safety over all these years and losing dad and all that. One of them, that if you want to be safe, it's up to you and you and you alone. Forget about your employer. Forget about the government. Forget Great about message. legislation. Forget about all of that. If you want to be safe, that's up to you. Yeah. Great and the message. other thing is this. It is complacency that hurts and kills people. Always. Yeah. It is always that. So then, of course, you have that, that bracket of things that are, that are rare, the, the, unex, the, um, the unexpected, um, the unforecast. Yeah. Those things are the rarity, though, and and my experience, and I know I, I say that with confidence because I've seen it. I've been to so many different workplaces because a lot of times I will be asked to go and speak to workers after an event, and it has been my experience in every case that it was because of worker complacency that that injury occurred. So it tells me this that that where we have a, a, a way to go is within ourselves to convince ourselves of the danger of what we do. You know, not everyone works in a dangerous workplace. Not everyone's got to think about that. But for those of us who do, and I work in the, and, and when I say we, I'm a, I'm a sports presenter. There's not a lot of danger in, in sitting at a news desk, I've got to tell you. <laughs> however, however, I, I, I work on a farm. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the other part of my life. That is the most dangerous workplace in this country. And every statistic yeah. proves that. So guess what? I'm in this up to my neck with everybody yeah. else. And you know what I got to constantly do? Do you know what I what I have to I have to work on myself every single day that I go to my farm is not to take risks. Because I'm exactly my father's son. Yeah. He taught me well. Yeah. I am. <laughs> it will not happen to yeah. me. That is me. And if I let that feeling, if I let that that emotion, oh, you know what, I'm bulletproof on this, on that. And because remember, mate, I played a contact sport where where that that feeling or that that notion that you that, that you're tough and all the rest of it is very important because without it, you can't do the job. So so what I have to do is, and I have programmed myself to look at things and think about what happened yeah. to my dad. You're reconditioning. You're reconditioning yourself to think in a different way. Absolutely, and I and yeah. I do now. I I the things I saw my father do uh, as a young boy growing up on our property. If I was emulating him today, still, I have no doubt that I'd have done myself some serious harm by now. If not, if not, have not killed. And you think, well, okay, that's an exaggeration. Well, it's not. 
I mean, we, we fell trees, we, we cut up timber, um, we do all sorts of things with all sorts of machinery. Any single day that I'm out there, there is something that if it goes far enough wrong, I will not come home. And yes. so guess what? I look at it with that type of seriousness because I have lived through what happens when you get it wrong. And I don't want that for my family. Not now, yeah, not tomorrow, not any time. There's not a good time for this to happen. You can't say to yourself, oh, my kids are growing up. If I do something to myself now, that'll still hurt them just exactly. And, and then, it, then it affects your, your grandchildren and all the other things that go on in this world. So it is, it is really a mindset, a reconditioning, as you say, a reconditioning of your mindset to understand when you work in a dangerous workplace and when you work with electricity, it's dangerous. So guess what? You have to, when you jump in your ute to go to work every day, you have to say to yourself, you know what? Got to be careful today because I'm dealing with something that if it goes wrong, it can kill me. It's yep. that simple. And, and if you're going to do that, if you're me, right, if, if, I, if I was going out to my farm every day and I was deciding to be safe because I didn't want to hurt myself and I was worried about the pain, I wouldn't do it. It wouldn't worry me. I'd just go, I'd charge headlong to anything. What I do think about is, is, is my darling wife and, and my, my children and, and what they mean to me and what it would do to them. Yeah, that's absolutely. what stops my complacency. And yeah. that's what we all have to do. We have to find a mechanism within ourselves to stop our complacency. Because understand this, it is complacency that does it. And, yeah. and, and nothing will convince me differently because everything I've ever seen about someone hurting themselves at work has been around complacency. And as we talked about earlier with apprentices, what they have to train themselves to, to, to avoid is complacency. Do not be complacent around something which, if it goes wrong, even and with electricity, as we all know, it doesn't have to go far wrong and you Absolutely. are dead and you are not coming back from it. And you can't see it. Mate, you can jump can't in the ute, you can maybe felling a tree, you can be mate, putting up a fence, you can, hey, some of those things are visual to you in yeah. our industry. And as we said, we described it as as a high risk industry and what we do, you can't see it. You know, So it makes it even more dangerous. So the complacency and the rigor around good systems, good culture, accepted practice, no shortcuts is, is extremely important. Um, um, mate, just on a bit of a, uh, a different topic, um, you were recruited by Wayne Bennett um, in and around about the same age as we um, we take our apprentices on here at Stowe, in around that 18, 19. And, and, um, and um, you know, they're coming from a different environment, whether out of college or school and working into an environment. And as a business, so we set examples and we set uh, the rules and in, 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 in what they need to do and how we influence their careers. Um, you acknowledge Wayne as probably one of the greatest influences in your career. What would you say the greatest influence on you was that he had and something that still probably lives with you today? Look, uh, you'll find me to be one of Wayne Bennett's most loyal, or well, was he servant once, I suppose, but, <laughs> but he's, he's, my, he's my mate, my friend. And in many ways, he he was a dad that I, he became a dad to me in, in in that way. I mean, no one replaces your father, but but he went as close as somebody could. Um, and his influences are many, but they're very simple. Um, and one, you know, one of the ones, and and this fascinates me with him because he had a pretty tough upbringing himself, and and you know he hasn't had a bowl of roses for for a life as well. But but he. Um, he will make you acknowledge that life is not fair. You know, it's not fair what happened to my father and then what happened to our family, but it is what it is. And you just got to, you, you got to suck it up and move on and you got to keep moving. 
And that's one of the, the big things that I learned from him. And that's not about not having empathy for people or sympathy or whatever um, for, for people who, who fall on hard times. But at some point, that has to stop. And, and he did this for me, actually. Um, you have to stop wallowing in, in, in the grief of it um, and you have to move on. And he, he made me see that with, with Dad. He made me see that at the end of my career, in fact, because I went through a similar thing. Now, this happens to a great many people when they retire from work or retire from professional sporting career. You wallow in the grief of it because something that was very important to you, you no longer have. And he gave me a simple piece of advice one day because I was, I was lamenting that, you know, I was, I was doing my television presenting. I was doing this and doing that. I really wasn't happy. I was missing, I was missing footy and all that, all that went with that Um and, and a great many other things I was struggling with. He said, you know what, you know what you've got to get your head around? And I said, well, what? He <laughs> said, mate, all you've got to do with anything that you ever do from this day forward is turn up with the same attitude that you used to turn up at training with for me. And that is just turn up and go to work. Great um, and, and you know what? Once I, once I took that on, once I took that edict on, and I'll give you an interesting story about how real that was. So when I went to Channel 7, straight after I finished playing footy, I, all I wanted to do was go back and be on our farm. But things hadn't worked out in that way. There's great, and that's a story behind a story. But so it wasn't going to be that I could go back, be on our farm and do what I wanted to do for the whole of my life. So I was at Channel 7 and I was fighting, fighting like buggery to not be a television presenter. Now, that sounds ridiculous, but that is what I was doing. And so, so they, kept, they kept getting me to practice and I'd go on set and read and do all yeah. that. I could do it all, but I would not do it live. I would not go and take the next step. Anyway, because I, I thought if I do that, if I do that, I'm going down a path I'm never going to get back from. And it was a ridiculous notion, but that's what I was thinking at the time. So anyway, at about that time, I spoke to Wayne and he gave me that piece of advice I just alluded to. And you know what I did that afternoon? I went up to Channel 7 and I said to the news director, I said, I'm reading the sport tonight. And he looked at me because they desperately wanted me to do it for whatever reason, but they wanted me to do it. And he said, well, what's changed? I said, nothing, mate. I'm doing it tonight. And that's that. And you know, I did it that night and I've done it every other night for, the, for my roster for the last 15 years. Great. And, it, and it's because of that simple piece of advice from Wayne. And, and there's, a, there's so many things I could talk about what he's done, but I'll, I'll, give, you a tip. I'll give you a tip about what makes Wayne Bennett special. And, and, and this, is, this, this goes to, if you want to lead anyone, you want to lead a group of people to do anything, be it business, any sort of undertaking, this is what you've got to give people who, if you want them to follow you. So when my dad was killed, um, his funeral was on a, was on a Friday. Yeah. Anyway, so... Go to the funeral. It was, it was the most god-awful day that I've ever been involved with. And I, I remember bugger all about it. But I remember at the end of the service, we're carrying Dad's coffin out. My brother and I were... You, were yeah, your brother. Yeah. So we were we were lead pallbearers at the, at the front of Dad's coffin. I walked out the little church in Lieburn, little town I grew up in. I go out and there was people everywhere because they couldn't fit in the church. And I look over on the side of the hill and I see this big tall bugger. And it was Wayne Bennett. Now... When I say that, the people think, well, of course, Wayne Bennett was there. You were playing for the Broncos. But I actually wasn't. I was, I, was, I was part of what you'd call a group of maybe, maybe possibilities. So I was a long way from being anything at that club. And what, what I would say that the Broncos, if they're a decent organisation, which they are, what they, what they owed our family was a simple acknowledgement, and which they did. The club sent flowers and condolences. Wayne said, you take the time that you need to get back and all the rest of it. So I wasn't really anywhere in that 
But as I alluded to earlier, one of the things we felt on that day, and I'll never forget this feeling, was an overwhelming sense that me, my brother, my mother, our family, we were, we were simply ants. And what I mean by that is this, the world had just taken our dad from us and destroyed our lives and we had no control over it and that it meant nothing and that we were just getting pushed around like little chess pieces, if you like, by some greater force. And, and you, you lose all control and all meaning. That Wayne went that day meant to us that, you know, because we're a little family from a little town and, and we, we never saw ourselves in any sort of light. But that Wayne went there that day meant that my father being killed meant something to the world. Yeah. Now, that, that sounds wishy-washy when I say it out like that, but that's what it meant. And so Wayne took that effort. Now, all he did was a three-hour drive from Brisbane. But here's what he really did, which I learned years later. So Wayne Bennett is, is, a, is a coach's coach, right? And so the, the success of the, of the organisations he's working for, be it Broncos, where it, it all started for him, I suppose, but all the clubs he's ever been to, he is, he is you know, the success and what he needs to do that is paramount. So when my dad was killed, he was, as I said, it was killed uh, the morning of a, uh, of the morning after the, uh, the state of origin, the middle of state of origin, 1994. Um, and at that time, the Bronx, as they often would in, in, in the origin period, were struggling. So the measure of success, which if you look at today's side is a bit different, <laughs> but the measure of success then was that we made the finals or your season had, your season had been a failure. So they were struggling and they were doing it really tough. So fast forward the next week and late that next week when Dad was getting married, and and that week had become a must-win for their chances to make the final. Now, to know Wayne Bennett now, after all of that, is to know that that's when he really kicks into top gear is when it's getting serious, and yeah. it was getting bloody serious then. So the most important the most important session. So they were playing um, on a on a Saturday afternoon. So the most important session is the captain's run, which is always the day before the game. So. That was the Friday morning of that week. And Wayne does his best work. That's where you, you pull together the lessons of what happened the week before, what you've tried to do at training, and you, and you put that all in a nice, tight captain's run training yeah. session, and he gives a, um, a, a, a talk, if you like, which is meant to galvanise us and get us ready to play and bring it all together. It is the most important the most important training session any week, but the most important training session on an important week that you can have. But on that day, Wayne wasn't at that meeting. Wayne wasn't at that training run. He was at my father's funeral. Wow. And I, can, I cannot begin to, to tell you the loyalty that that agendered in me for him that never went away because he put me first, he put my family first when he had every right not to. So if you want to lead people, you want people, you know, you want people to think something of you, you want to set culture. You want to set culture. Set culture. We talked about that earlier. You want to set culture. Leadership. Do things like that. Do things yeah. like that because that's real. Telling someone you care about them is great. Showing that you do is so much more powerful. And 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 he is, you know what? And it wouldn't have been three weeks later that he would have been yelling at me saying saying to get my ass into gear and to do something <laughs> properly. So it wasn't a cuddly, feely thing, but it was an, an enormous show of respect for me and my family that I've never forgotten. And, you know, I tell that story. Every other well-known Bronco you know, I could I could get them to tell you a similar story, different similar to what story. I'm telling you, but something something akin to that, where he has put them first, beyond himself and the club and everyone else's interest to put you first because it was important that you were first, 
That is what leadership and culture looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Shane, uh, mate, been great chatting with you. Um, I'd like to encourage everyone who jumps on the podcast to jump online and view Playing It Safe with Shane Webke. Um, help change attitude to safety because if we can change one person's life or influence one person's choice to go home safe that day, uh, I think we've done our job, mate, and we're all going to join with you. I'd just love to finish on a note, maybe a message to our stellar apprentices. We touched on a little bit before about what you might say to them, but just, just in the closing message, mate, uh, we spoke about being a, um, a high-risk injury, spoke about electricity, spoke about the choices. If you can just leave us with a, a message for the young kids that are coming into the industry more broadly who might watch this podcast, but the boys um, who enter into the, to their apprenticeships and working with Stowe, um, I'd love you to leave them with a message for me, mate. Well, well two bits, two bits. Because life's, life's about a lot of things, and, and safety is paramount, and that's what we're talking about today. But the other thing is, is, is for young apprentices, if, if, you want to be, if you want to be successful, not just at your, at your apprenticeship with, with Stone. In life. In but life. in life, if you want to be successful, be the hardest worker. Turn up early, do your job, go the extra yard. They are the people in this life who get ahead. Now, whatever that means to you, I'm not just talking about it in a financial sense, but everything that you do, if you are the hardest worker, you will succeed. And nothing in life, nothing in life has changed my view of that. Everything I've ever been good at was because I was prepared to work harder than others at times when others wouldn't. So guess what? Don't turn up. If you're starting at, if you're starting at 7 o'clock, you're actually late if you turn up at 7 o'clock. Turn up at quarter to 7. Now, you think that's a small thing. You think that's an old-fashioned thing. But I assure you of this. People, people notice and people Absolutely. respect that. In terms of safety, and I'll say this because I'm talking directly to, to electrical apprentices, mm. you are working with something that you cannot see that can kill you. Can you, can you never forget how dangerous an occupation you're about to, to enter into? Yes, it's a great one. And yes, it's, it's obviously a very satisfying thing when, when there is such danger involved to deliver things safely. And never, ever be afraid to ask the, those above you the question, I feel like this is unsafe. Am I doing it right? Do Stop not ever ask. be afraid. Stop and ask. Because you think you might be looked at it in a poor light because you'd stop and ask. I assure you, uh, without even knowing, I assure you that those who run Stowe that are above you, they want you to do that. And they Absolutely. will be disappointed if you do the opposite. So Absolutely. keep those two things in mind. You are working with something. You are working with something that's very dangerous and you can't see. So if it feels dangerous, it is, regardless of what the, the outcome of that come, becomes. The other thing I will say, and I'll reiterate right now, be the hardest worker. Those are the people in life who succeed. Absolutely. Well, Shane, it's been great. Stay safe. And, um, again, everyone jump online and um, go on and have a look at uh, Playing Safe with Shane Webby. We'll talk soon again, mate. Take care. Thanks, mate. It's been a pleasure.